0: You are listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. So uh, last week I I shared with you this particular movement quote, Um, there are no shortcuts to worthwhile destinations. The destination dictates the journey. Um, That one's mine. It's an observational quote that we used last week and we'll kind of springboard into this week. As followers of Christ, all of our calling, all of our callings are to spiritual leadership. A spiritual leader is one who uses and develops spiritual influence for spiritual impact. And all leadership growth, all spiritual leadership growth comes from discipleship growth. All of it moves in that direction. These these sermons around leadership aren't about finding the best you, okay? There is no best us without Christ. When we we find Christ, when we are absorbed in Christ, when we allow Christ in these words to shape us it's not about becoming our best us as much as it becoming more and more like him, which really is our best us, right? You, you, there is no finding the best of me without finding me through Christ Last week, I talked to you that God is asking and calling us all to, um, to lead, to spiritually lead in five particular circles, and in my reflection this week, I added a sixth. If you don't have too much to do, I added a sixth. Here are the leading up in these circles. The first is ourself. All leadership, spiritual or otherwise, begins with leading ourself. Second, our family. Circle number three is our church. Number four is our community. Number five is our workplace, work environment, work sphere. And the last one I added is our world, our work world. Now, I don't want you to think about this as lists. I'm not a graphic designer. I I could not create a graphic for this. And by the time I get to these revelations, nobody else has time to create what I want them to create either. But I want you to think more of concentric circles than I do a list of one, two, three, four, five, six, okay? That's just... I think more in, in those lines. Many of you think more in the other side of your brain. So think about you know, the rock being thrown into the pond. The biggest circle, biggest impact, right, is, is the rock hitting the pond. That becomes the first circle. That's what self-spiritual leadership is, is that first where that rock hits the pond. And then it creates the ripples, all right? That, so here comes the impact. And, and I think the impact follows, and at least the impact will follow ourselves and our family right? Um, the other ones you might be able to interchange, but the ripples come in and out. And I believe that God's calling us to lead in all of these circles, um, beginning with ourselves. Here's the core text for, um, for this series and for our year. It's from Psalm 78, 70 through 72. It says, he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens From tending the sheep, he brought brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, and with skillful hands, he led them. So no matter what life stage, no matter what age, no matter what status, no matter what position you find yourself in now, all spiritual leadership or our lead up all begins in sheep pens. Okay, sheep pens. So let's talk a little bit about sheet pens. First, I'll say there's a football adage that says you cannot win a game in the first half, but you can lose a game in the first half. And use whatever recent football memory you have in order to apply it to that comment. Not many people paid much attention this past week, I guess. (laughs) We don't make legacy marks in our sheet pens. But our sheep pens mark our personhood and mark our leadership. Um, sheep pens are simple, unassuming places. Um, I'd say that they're um, under the radar places in our life, meaning other people don't probably don't haven't gotten to see our sheep pens. Um, but I think they're even farther than that. I think they're probably off the grid kind of places in our life. But they are integral and they're valuable places in our lives. So here are some characteristics that I've drawn from a sheep pen. First, a sheep pen is a safe place to learn. It's a safe place to learn. It's where accountability is high, and um, the the the, um, the the damage or the uh, of failure is very very low. The risks are very low. Supervision is very high. Now, at my father's station, I didn't gravitate to mechanical work. I gravitated to tire work. For some reason, that machine at that time, which was a pretty big machine that took tires on and off of wheels, fascinated me. And so I spent my time learning how to repair, replace tires. And it was a significant chunk of our business. And I remember my dad saw that I was interested in that. And so I learned, started learning with old tires and old rims with him helping me, because when you mount and dismount a tire, it's easy to tear the bead around the tire that helps seat it against the rim to hold the air, and if you don't do it right, correctly, or the like, you can tear that, so once I got proficient enough with the old tires, dad would let me work on a customer's tires with him standing there, now here's what's interesting about sheep pens, rarely are you ready to leave a sheep pen when you think you are, and I remember a particular occasion, he could tell that I was getting frustrated because I'm standing with a customer and I'm trying to do the tire and I'm having trouble with it. And he's standing over trying to help me and he can tell that this is bothering me. I've been told that you can tell what I'm thinking by how I look. I've been told that. I'm not quite sure that that's true, but, but I've been told that. And so he got frustrated with me being frustrated. He finally walked in, he went into the office. And for the next 15 minutes, I'm struggling with this tire until I realized... I can't do this. And so I had to walk from the, from, the, from the base to his office, knock on the door and say, Dad, I'm stuck. Now, what's interesting about my father is he never fussed at me. He never said, I told you so. Um, all he did was walk calmly with me and in a nanosecond, fix what I was trying to do. And afterwards, in our conversation, he said, son, it's not that I don't trust you. He said, they don't trust you. I'm here because they don't trust you. They don't know you like I know you. Now, the reason why I talk so much about my experience with my father at the service station, you know why? It was a sheet pen for me. It was a place where I learned people. It was a place where I learned how to interact with people. It was a way in which I learned how to do things when nobody was watching. It was, it was an important place for me.? right? And we don't to always love our sheep pens. We can't control our sheep pens. There's one thing in our life we can't control is what our sheep pen was. But we can control what we take out of our sheep pens. And I'll, I'll say this other note: You, you have to learn sheep pen lessons in sheep pens. It's very difficult to learn a sheep pen lesson out of the sheep pen. Does this make sense to you? That these are lessons that you're going to have to learn. And when you can learn them in a sheep pen, supervision is high, risk is low. When you're outside of the sheep pen and you're still having to learn these lessons, generally supervision is lower and risk is higher. Don't fight your sheep pen, and they're worth reflecting over. Sheep pens also forge an integrity. You've heard the saying, you are who you are when no one's looking. I've heard it said that golf does not build character, it reveals character. So a shepherd's job was pretty mundane. Take them from point A, take them to point B. They're going to eat, they're going to drink, and when they're done, take them back to point A. A, it was a very results-oriented position. If you leave with 100 sheep, you need to bring back 100 sheep, right? I think it's Youth Pastor 101. You know, anytime I'd take teenagers away for camps, they said, what's your goal, pastor? And I said, to bring back the same number of kids I left with, right? (laughs) To me, that is the first sign of a successful camp, right? When you drop off buses at multiple places on stops out of the interstate where they can go to multiple places to eat and you can come back with all the same kids, it's a win, I'm telling you. It's a win. But who we are when no one's looking happens a lot in sheep pens. And it's a place in which you build the integrity that you will keep building on the rest of your life. Listen, if we can't be trusted with a few little things, why would God trust us with big things? And you know what God's big thing is? people. This is God's big thing. We like to think about what we can do or what we can accomplish, what we can achieve, what we're going to leave our mark, all good things. But God's big thing is people. And if he can't trust us with the little things and the little jobs and the little responsibilities in the sheep pen where nobody's watching, why would he ever trust us with influence with people? It's a good question. A sheet pen is a launching place. So it's a, learn, it's a learning place. It's a place of in, to learn integrity. It's a launching place. Sheep pens aren't ending places. They're beginning places. And you can't allow fear to keep you in the pen when it's time to leave the pen. And you can't allow a negative experience in the sheet pen to keep you there in emotionally or intellectually in that pen. It's just a launching place. It's not an ending place. And you can take some solace and understanding that God never wastes anything in your sheep pen. David is in a moment of reflection in the psalm, right? There was a lot of things David could say in psalms. He said a lot of things in the psalms. He definitely doesn't even, he doesn't touch his accomplishments in the psalms. His psalms are reflection points Teaching points, worship points. And in this particular psalm, I think he calls us all to recognize that we all started in the same place. We all start in the sheep pens. Lastly, I'll say that a sheep pen is an anchoring point because you can leave a sheep pen, but you should never leave the lessons learned in the sheep pen. That your beginnings remind you of the grace of God, the provision of God, the lessons of God. This is where you learn them. This is what becomes anchoring points in your life. Zechariah 4.10 is an important scripture to me where it says that do not despise the days of small beginnings. People will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hands of Zerubbabel when Zerubbabel was tasked in rebuilding the temple. When you get out of plumb line, Mr. Engineer Kevin, it's the beginning of a project, right? It's not midway, it's not end, it's the beginning of a project. And he's saying, do not despise small beginnings. Do not think that your ending place has been inhibited by your beginning place. Your ending place is not gonna be inhibited from your beginning place. God determines your ending place. When you flip back four different verses, um, Zechariah also has this to say. Not by might, nor by power, but by my strength, saith the Lord Almighty. It's very difficult to see ending places from beginning places because we generally look at ourselves and we look at what stands between us and that dream or that calling or the like. And honestly, those things are somewhat irrelevant because we're measuring those things through what we see and what we think we can do and accomplish. And all of that neglects who God is and what God is doing and wants to do inside of each of us. So throughout scripture, there are two common kinds of leaders that God partners with. Um, I got through one of those in uh, the first service, decided not to go to the second one um, because no one ever has ever complained about a sermon being too short. Um, We'll see where this goes today. The two, however, I'll tell you, reluctant leader and an overlooked leader, okay? These are two types of leaders God partners with in scriptures, the reluctant leader and the overlooked leader. Israel's first leader, now we can also obviously Abraham is who, who who goes to a country that he does not know. But Moses is, Israel's established now, and Moses becomes, in my opinion, kind of the first leader, and he's a great test case in the reluctant leader. He there's a there's a scene when he turns 80, so he spent 40 years growing into who God had called him to be. He spent 40 years running away from that, if you will. And now at 80, two-thirds of his life is gone. He has this, what, what we, we now have called this burning bush moment, right? And you may have used that adage with you before, the, a burning bush moment. We say that because how do you ignore spontaneous combustion, <laughs> Right? It's it's difficult to ignore that. And so here's kind of how this context plays out where we learn about the reluctance of Moses. Verse 10 of chapter 3 says, So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. That would have should have been a very reassuring, timely word from the Lord to someone who was on not just desert. We've, we, we've learned to say, well, we have a desert experience. We can see in Scripture a lot of desert experiences. Moses is not having a desert experience. Moses is having the backside of a desert experience, right? I mean, so, so he's well beyond desert here, all right? It is, it is his backside of this desert, but he still receives this word. It should have been a reassuring word. And yet, verse 11, he begins with, but... But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I will tell you, it is always a dangerous moment to butt God. I always, give, I always love watching um, college football coaches. Generally, I, I don't know how, what their blood pressure raises to in the course of a game. But every once in a while, you'll see a coordinator or a grad assistant or someone headbutt another player. The player has a helmet on they do not, and somehow people get fired up over this, and I don't, I don't quite get it because the guy without the helmet always gets bloodied. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's always blood trickling somewhere, and here's what happens. When you decide to headbutt someone that has a harder head than you, you are the one who comes away injured, and I can assure you God has a harder head than you and I do, but he, he butts God, right? His first butt. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites... Out of Egypt. Moses has put his background into his foreground. He has put his background into his foreground. He definitely has disqualifying acts that would disqualify him from spiritual leadership. But he is hearing the call of God and he has still got attached to him these disqualifying elements. And listen, anytime you're dragging your past failures behind, it will slow you down, or if they're enough, it'll stop you. Failing is not being a failure. In fact, some people will tell you that if you're not failing in something, you're not trying enough new things. It is perfectly okay to fail, but when you let that disappointment and discouragement go to your heart, that's when the enemy starts convincing you that you are a failure. Failing is is time-specific. Failure is much more global. Failing doesn't have to keep you in the same spot. Seeing yourself as a failure will always keep you at the same spot. In God's eyes... Failures don't erase purpose. Failures do not erase purpose. Failing with God doesn't make you irredeemable. Here's God's response And God said, I will be with you. I love this. There is no rehearsal of what the disqualifying acts were. There was not an evaluation of what they were. There was a promise of his presence. So in essence, you could say God meets all of our failings with his presence to carry out his call. I will be with you. God's presence trumps our resumes good ones bad ones he doesn't address the goodness nor the badness except for addressing it with his presence i will call you i will lead you we he's calling us to be first followers when I talk about spiritual leadership, it's more on the lines of first followers. We're following him as our leader. You can't follow someone who's not present, and he's always present. Um, so when he's saying it's time to move, um, you won't be moving alone. All right, here's Moses' reluctance number two. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? In essence, he's saying, who's gonna believe what just happened to me? Right? Like, this is a story I'm not gonna be able to tell everywhere. You know, I'm in the desert and a bush starts burning. And then I go over and look at the bush and the bush tells me to take off my shoes. And the bush then tells me to come to you and lead you out. I mean, the reluctance many times in spiritual leadership is, is how, how are we supposed to communicate that we feel like God has told us this or is leading us in this way? Or, look, um, I just feel prompted to pray with you right now. Is that something I can do? Look, I, I, don't, I don't know why I'm saying this to you, but do you have a minute? This is Moses' reluctance. This is gonna just, how do I keep this from just being, looking like it's something I'm doing again, okay? That's his reluctance point. Who's gonna believe me? I barely believe it myself. Here's God's response. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. To me, it never appeared to be a great answer, right? I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God's also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generations to generations. God is saying, you can trust me. I am complete. I am everything. I am all in all You can trust. What I'm going to say to them—they don't know. You, Moses, you can trust me, and they can trust me. All right. We're not done with the reluctance. Here's reluctance number three. What if they don't believe me or listen to me and they say, the Lord did not appear to you? Now, how do you even answer that, right? You say, you know, you want to pray for someone or you feel God's calling you into someone else's life. Um, uh, how in the world are we supposed to um, address the questions that Moses is trying to address? Well, here's God's answer. Then the Lord said to him, what is it, what is it in your hand? A staff, He replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and became a snake and he ran from it. I find that quite humorous. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. That's even more humorous. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and he turned it back into a staff in his hand. This said the Lord uh, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak. When he took it out, the skin was leprous. Uh, Moses put his hand back into his cloak. And when he took it out, it was white as snow. Um, Then the Lord said, if they don't believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. God's answer was, if they don't believe what you say, they will believe what you what they see. As ambassadors of Christ, as his children, he has given the authority and his spirit for us to do things, insert ourselves in situations in which he responds with miracles. I've never put my hand inside my shirt and it came out leprous. I've never thrown my golf club on the ground and it turned into, I've thrown my golf club on the ground. I'm just saying I haven't thrown it on the ground and it turned into anything else. But I, what I am saying is when it, it is by, by far, when, when God calls us into different situations with people or other things, these things are over our heads, but they're not over God's head. And God will do what God wants to do to demonstrate who he is and what he can do. The question is, will we believe him enough and trust enough to step into those needing and believing him to have to do something even miraculous in order to demonstrate who he is? I wonder, I I wish, I, I can count times where I did not step into things because I did not have the faith of a miracle that God would do something to prove himself to them, I always feel like I've got to prove him to them. God doesn't need us to defend him, guys. God doesn't need our defense of him. He just needs our faith in him. Our faith in him is what moves mountains and moves people. Not our intellectual prowess or our cleverness, it's going to be stepping into faith and, he, and faith believing that he will demonstrate his reality to people. And he's chosen to demonstrate that with unique partnerships with, with us. All right. Um, Moses is still reluctant. Can you be reluctant after your staff turns into a snake? Can you, can you be that reluctant? Here it comes. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Like from the, from the get-go to now, I still don't talk very well. Um, now he's just acting afraid to me. God's response. Who gave human beings their mouths? What a great answer. Who gave you that mouth, Moses? Moses. Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. You're starting to get a picture of the patience of God here. Because now he's, um, Moses, you're really dragging up some really, really small stuff now. We've dealt with the big questions. Now you're getting to be a little bit Ridiculous. Let's go. I will help you speak. I will teach you what to say. I love I' reading passages of the New Testament. Jesus told, tells the disciples, "Don't worry about what happens if you're arrested. Don't worry about the difficulties, because the Holy Spirit will give you what to say when you are need to say something. If you're ever curious about does, does God still speak today, He does. He speaks, especially. He can speak through his people. By, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he can do that to us in any situation in which he places us that we're afraid to step into because we don't know what to say. <laughs> well, pastor, I would, I would engage with this person but I don't know what to tell him. So? So? Now, go. Here's how Moses concludes. But, he's, but, he's headbutting God Again. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord, please send somebody else. Wow. Wow. I can say wow because I've told God the same thing. And your gasp probably is because some of you have told him the same thing. That's what drives home this story. It's not that the story, the story is powerful but what drives home the story is our place in that story. God, I know you've answered all of my questions that I thought to ask, but would you still use somebody else? Wow. God's conclusion. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. Double wow. Well. I, I've tried to dig even to find the depths of this and I, and, I, and, I, and I couldn't in the resources I looked at. What does it look like for God's anger to burn towards us? Does, does his anger, does, his, does our reluctance, does it cost us something? I, I, don't, I don't know this side of heaven. I don't know this side of heaven. But what's fascinating to me is, is we have this very bold, honest, guttural statement in Exodus and the Lord's anger burns. And then, but then it says, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He's already on his way to meet you. you, you, you get the, he's already on his way to meet you on the backside of this desert while you and I are having this nonsensical conversation about me and you and leading. You speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you, you, uh, you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform Signs with it. Interesting that he gives the power of the signs to Moses only. So, although God's anger burned against Moses, what Moses received was grace. Wow. Wow. What we know is that even reluctant leaders are given grace by God. What we know is that God still works through reluctant leaders to accomplish his purposes. We also know that there has to be a time when reluctant leaders have to leave their self-imposed timeouts, desert experiences, and get back to their spiritual calling of spiritual influence for spiritual impact. Your family can't wait any longer for this. Your church can't wait any longer for this. Your community can't wait any longer for this. Your workplace, our world can't wait any longer for called, reluctant leaders. And this is where I stopped in the first service. And I'll stop again. We'll talk about overlooked leaders another time. But here is a statement. God uses reluctant, overlooked, and flawed people for spiritual influence, for spiritual impact. Surrendered, faith-filled movement overcomes disqualifying actions and squandered opportunities. Come up team. Come on up, team. Surrendered, faith-filled movement overcomes disqualifying actions and squandered opportunities. If you were writing a propaganda piece for um, Jesus, you wouldn't have written what we have in our hand here because it doesn't hide anything. Why doesn't it hide some of the inconsistencies and failures of the leaders in Scripture? Let me read you the first verses of Psalm 78 before you get to the sheep pen uh, integrity of heart passage. It says, oh my people, hear my teaching, David speaking, listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from old. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us, we will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord his power and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commandments. We have all of these sheep pen experiences and failures and falters and spurts and stops of all of these leaders in Scripture. And those things have been told from generation to generation because we hit our own spurts and stops and failures. And if we did not have the examples of people who still stayed pliable to God that God would use despite themselves. We would not have the courage to keep moving forward. And our kids need to see that in us. Sure, there's some things we don't tell our kids at certain ages, right? We don't overshare certain experiences. But you know what? I don't, there's probably, I don't even know if there's more than two or three experiences in my life that I have, my failures that I haven't shared with Annie. Don't hit me up after service, baby. There's, there, those are in a vault. God understands who we are. He understands the damage that sin made in the fall to our nature. He knows this thing, Ah, but he also knows who he created us to be and the perfection of who he is and the perfection of the kingdom. And right now we don't live in that perfection and yet the call that he has for us remains the same not to disqualify us or hide ourselves from those negative, disqualifying features, but to receive the grace of God and to see the culture the way he sees the culture. Jesus never blames the culture for being the culture. He recognizes them as harassed and helpless, for sure. But he describes harassed and helpless as ripe. I don't know if you're watching The Chosen or not. I'd highly recommend watching The Chosen. Um, it is a, well, Google it. Um, so season three, episode two, they, they, they linked episodes one and two in the theaters over, over the holidays, Gene and I went to go see it. One of the things I love about this, when you read scripture, first of all, right now, I'll just say that, um, what's the Jesus guy's name? I'm hearing Jesus's words in his voice now. I just got to tell you, it's it's the oddest thing in the world, right? I'm I'm reading what Jesus is saying and I hear his accent or it's cracking me up. I got to tell you. But what I'm loving is it because it it pulls it off. I try, but I'm still one dimensional, right? Two dimensional. I I try to pull things out of the passage that you wouldn't see. But man, when you see it on a screen. All right, so episode two, back half of episode two, Jesus gathers the disciples in the room. Now they've watched, they've heard him teach. He's come off the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, 7. And um, uh, he's got them in a room together. He said, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. It is not possible for me to preach to all the people who need to be preached to. It is not possible for me to heal everybody that needs to be healed, to cast out the demons. It's not possible for me to do this. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to send all of you out two by two, and you're going to preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and the Christ has come to free you. And you will cast out demons and you will heal the sick. And it's this powerful moment. And then there's this pause. And Matthew is in the back corner and he says, Rabbi, can you repeat that? And in that first phrase, you capture kind of the moment of what's happening here. So he says, gladly, Matthew. And he doesn't give a truncated speech again. He says, you are to preach the kingdom of God is at hand. And I give you the authority to preach the gospel, to cast out demons, and to heal the sick. And man, it's just, it's a fabulous scene. So questions start popping up. One is, well, what are we supposed to tell them? And he said, what well, you've heard. He said, I'm late. I'm kind of late to the party. I've only heard one sermon. And it was either Jesus or someone else said, well, it was a pretty good one. You can stick with that one. Um, One guy says, did I miss some ceremony? (laughs) And uh, I think it was Jesus that replied, this is it. And then someone says, well, don't you think that there's people more qualified to do this? And Jesus' humorous, somewhat poignant response is, if I wanted religiously qualified people, I wouldn't have chosen you. Wow. Hear, hear, hear what Jesus is saying. The needs that we are encountering are beyond my physical space, me Physically, in the flesh, Jesus cannot get to all that has to be gotten to. I have chosen you. You are now the leaders. Let's go. You and I are the same and we're different. We're the same in the sense that there is no higher value that God places on me than he places on you. The difference is that my particular call gets played out in this arena. But our callings are the same. So, even with a paid staff of pastors, can we honestly assess is it even possible to pastor our size congregation with a handful of full time staff members? It is not are all the prayers that need to be prayed face to face holding a hand engaging in someone in their pain is it possible for that to be done by an organization no and and neither was it ever designed to be that way i love church i love institutional church i love organizational church i've told you forever That when some people say, I don't like organized religion, my response is, I don't like disorganized religion. I don't like anything disorganized. But we believe in the priesthood of all believers, that your context is a context God has designed for you. It's your context. It is your family. It is your church. It is your community. It is your workplace. It is our world that needs more spiritually influential people making more spiritual impact. We do that by becoming disciples. I don't preach for content. I am not a content creator. I am a pastor. I preach to pastor. I preach to shepherd. I preach to shape. I preach to inspire and encourage. Sometimes I preach to challenge and give you a boot. But this whole lead up call God's calling us to is because we are living in a spiritual leadership vacuum that will not be filled by people. It has to be filled by people. I wonder if you would classify yourself as that reluctant leader. Maybe you are still engaged in butting God. I understand. What's fascinating to me is we rarely ever have one sheep pen. There are multiple sheep pens in our life. But I believe the call is to move. Is the trust where God is bringing you that he's going to be with you, will speak through you, and that you, in fact would begin taking more spiritual risks. That you would become more spiritually adventurous. That maybe God is pushing to a context that is a little frightening and you go, oh well. Let's take a shot and watch and see. Give yourself a chance to see God turn some staffs into snakes, some leprous hands into whole. Pastor, I just haven't seen any miracles from God. Have you ever put yourself in a position where you needed to see a miracle from God, where you prayerfully expected to see a miracle, miracle of God? You're not proving yourself here. God doesn't need us to defend him. He's pretty good at defending himself. He needs us to take some risks with him to see what he wants to do. So I'm gonna pray this morning for the reluctant leaders in the room and watching at our 11 o'clock service or the archive. Some of you need to repent. There are disqualifying actions in your past that you have swept under the rug and just treated like they haven't existed and you've tried to move on with God. Nobody knows them. But I'm saying that those things, they don't need to be swept under the rug because when you sweep stuff under the rug, it has an amazing thing of bubbling up that rug. And when you start getting lumps in that rug, not only is it not a comfortable rug, you're gonna trip over those things. There's no need to sweep stuff under the rug with God. In fact, he wants to rip the scab off, bring them up to the service and and redeem you. (laughs) He wants to bring redemption, not hiddenness. Don't rob yourself of being redeemed. Don't rob yourself of knowing that you've been redeemed, like somehow you're not keeping a secret from God anymore because he knows. So repentance is an important step in this. If there's something that you need to lay before God and say, I've never told you, but I don't want this in my life. I don't want this memory. I don't want this pain. Repent. And the next step is then, if the repentance is not issue, surrenderness can be. Surrenderness is all about trust. In every area of your life, surrender is always about trusting Him more than you trust you. From your giving to your discipling, it's all about trust. Every bit of it. So I invite you to repent today. I invite you to surrender today. I invite you to respond to God's call to first lead yourself and then through these circles. So stand with me. Altars might not be in your background but I don't want you to be afraid of coming to an altar. Altars, were always meeting places with God. Pastor, can't I meet God where I'm standing? Yes, you can, yes, you can. But I would say if you're ever afraid to come to an altar for prayer is a clear indication that that's the place you probably need to do business with God. No one goes through and counts people at the altar and gives me lollipops after service. Okay? I'm just telling you that some of the most amazing things that's happened in my life in terms of connection to God has happened when I have separated myself out and come to an altar. But I encourage you, repent, surrender, move, do something. Uh, communion is always available to my left and my right. Now, Father, in this moment, in this moment, Lord, I pray that people would hear you clearly and they would respond to you appropriately. This isn't a Charlie call, Lord, this is you call. And I pray, Lord, you would break the reluctant chains off of us, that we, each of us, would step more into your kingdom and your kingdom ministry. In the name of Jesus I pray, amen. I invite you to move. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.